Good morning, St. Peter's. It's good to be with you today. If you would, please join me in a brief word of prayer. May the words in my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One thing I love most about Jesus's resurrection appearances is how unspectacular they are. He doesn't stand up in front of his synagogue or appear at the temple heralding his defeat of death as maybe I would be tempted to do. He talks to a woman in a garden. He eats breakfast with a few of his fishermen friends. He appears in a locked room and casually passes the peace to his terrified disciples. One of my favorite writers, Frederick Buechner, in considering these resurrection appearances, puts it like this. Jesus is apt to come into the very midst of life at its most real and inescapable. He never approached from on high, but always in the midst, in the midst of people, in the midst of real life and the questions that real life asks. And here in our gospel text for today, we have Thomas's doubt born from the events of his very real life. I often feel like Thomas gets typecasted as this sort of intellectual doubting cynic, you know, doubting Thomas, the guy who's always questioning everything. But we don't really know much about Thomas from the Gospels. And I'm tempted to say that our reading of him as an intellectual cynic probably says more about us and our post-enlightenment way of thinking about belief than it actually says about Thomas. After all, maybe his statement that he wouldn't believe Jesus had risen again without seeing him wasn't about skepticism as much as disappointment. It wasn't so much lacking trust in Jesus as it was lacking trust in his own heart. I mean, imagine being Thomas. Imagine walking and talking and reclining with and listening to Jesus for three years, thinking that you have found the one to save Israel. And then he ends up on a Roman cross with the worst of criminals. Wouldn't you, wouldn't we have a hard time believing our friends if they said that they had seen him? Not just because it seems impossible, maybe, but also because it's the one thing we want most in the world to be true. Sometimes the deepest offense to faith is not our rational minds, but our disappointed hearts. And trusting hope and joy can be far more difficult than trusting our eyes. My dad was a philosophy and apologetics professor at a Bible college for most of my life. He's still alive, by the way. He's just not teaching right now. But I remember when my sister and I were younger, he would tell us these stories of students who would come into his office 
And my dad was kind of at the fringes theologically of his institution. And so these students would come in really angry about something that he had said in class that they found heretical. And my dad said that as he sat with them and listened to them, over the course of the conversation, they'd begin to deflate. And invariably, he'd said, they start talking about parents getting divorced or experiences of abuse or pain at the hands of the church or a broken relationship and the real questions behind their questions would emerge. And questions can come in many forms for many reasons. I'm certainly not denying that rational or scientific reasons are among them, but I learned from my dad and from my own experiences that the questions that really burn in us usually come from someplace nearer to our hearts, out of our very real, complicated lives. Isn't it good news, then, that as Beekner said, it is into the midst of our very real, complicated lives that Jesus comes? And how does he come? Riding on a horse, waving a flag, storming the gate with a victory crown upon his head. No, he comes to us bearing scars left over from the cross. He comes to us, in other words, with the symbol of his suffering written on his resurrected body, because the memory of the crucifixion was not erased just because he rose again. It's such a paradoxical image of a savior, but I think it's also a deeply hopeful one because a wounded God is one we can put our faith in. His scars become an invitation to us. They invite us to lean in, to ask our questions. They tell us that our lives are not too real and messy and complicated that God cannot meet us in the midst of them, as surprisingly and sometimes as mundanely as he did in that locked room with his disciples. They tell us that our very real doubts born out of our very real lives have their home in Jesus, that there is enough space in him, enough patience and compassion to hold our questions with us, makes me think of the theologian Nicholas Waltersdorf's observation that the tears of God are the meaning of history. When we wonder what kind of a God rose again on Easter morning, what kind of a God it is that we worship, the scars on Jesus's body tell us that it's the kind of God who weeps with us whose compassion gives meaning to our lives. A couple of summers ago, I worked as a chaplain at Trenton Psychiatric Hospital, which is one of four state psychiatric hospitals in New Jersey. Everyone who's admitted to TPH is admitted involuntarily by a judge's order, either civilly or criminally. And many are at the hospital for months, even years. So you might imagine the kinds of things these patients have experienced. 
Throughout that summer, I got to know dozens of men and women who were on my unit. But there was one particular patient who I got to know especially well, and I'll call him Paul. Paul was a Puerto Rican man about my age in his mid-twenties. He had been incarcerated and then homeless prior to being admitted. And though he'd experienced deep trauma, like everyone at TPH, he had a generally cheerful personality. I remember every time I would leave the unit at the end of the day, he would call out to me, be safe, even though he was the one stuck on a locked unit and I was the one returning home to my privileged life. Because Paul always wore a t-shirt with the sleeves cut off, one of the first things anyone tended to notice about him were the scars on both of his arms. For most of the summer, neither of us mentioned those scars, although we came close a couple of times. And then toward the end of my summer at TPH, Paul and I were sitting at a table in the back of the unit. We were talking about the Bible. And the conversation shifted once again to the shame that he felt about his past. And at one point, he glanced down at his arms. And he said, almost in this tone of surprise, And I have these scars. And his voice trailed off. I waited for him to say more, but he didn't. And so for whatever reason, what came to my mind was to ask Paul if he knew that Jesus had kept his scars after the resurrection. And he said no. And so I told him this story about Thomas. And I said something like, You know, Paul, maybe this is something you and Jesus have in common. That conversation with Paul is a moment I've thought back to many times in the last two years. I remember having so much I wanted to tell him in that moment. So much I wanted to say about this God who wears scars, but I hadn't known how. But in a way, I find myself sitting before you this morning, once again talking about the story of Thomas. And I think that what I want to say hasn't much changed. Because to some degree, we're all Paul, aren't we? We all carry scars, whether visibly or invisibly. We all have things in our past that haunt us, things that we've done, and things that have been done to us. In our own ways, we too are survivors. We have survived our own lives, the particular mix of beauty and suffering that has left its mark upon us. And here's the hope for us on this second Sunday of Easter. Here's the hope that I wanted to give Paul that day, but I didn't know how. If God indeed rose and died and rose again on our behalf, then his scarred hands are transformed from a symbol of suffering to the symbol of hope. Not in a way that erases the trauma of crucifixion, but in a way that transfigures it into the promise of redemption and new creation. And so too then, our own scars 
become a testament not only to the suffering we've experienced, but also to the abundant grace that we've received. They tell the story of our doubts and our encounters, our mistakes and our blessings, which aren't always as distinguishable as we might think. And as we journey through Eastertide in 2021, coming out of a long, difficult year, who knows better the story of our lives than this God who wears scars? Let me end with this. In our passage, after Thomas is convinced by the sight of Jesus standing before him, Jesus tells him, Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have come to believe. Sight is a reoccurring theme in John's gospel. And here, like elsewhere in the gospel, it is those who have not or cannot see who possess true sight. And this is you and I. This is us. Though we have not seen him, we have come to believe in him. We even find unexplainably that we have come to love him and want to follow him. It has not always been easy to follow an invisible God, to have faith in the midst of our very real lives full of struggle and blessing, but we are here, we are trying, and perhaps in of itself, this is grace beyond grace. In a few minutes, we will all be witnesses of a baptism, a public confession of faith in an invisible God and surely the sacrament of baptism of all things is an example of this grace. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have come to believe. May we take that blessing as a gift and carry it with us until the day when the wounded God comes again and we will no longer need faith because we will see him with our own eyes. Amen.